I feel like we need a we need an upper now. <laughs> we Absolutely, need something to lift us out of the despair. Um, I don't have any, though. Know? <laughs> <laughs> it sure would be so nice, guys. but we don't have it. <laughs> Welcome to episode fifty-eight of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. I'm Sherry, and I'm Rory. Welcome back to another episode, everyone. How's everyone's week been going? Good. Busy. <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> Life is boring. <laughs> yeah. I more All I can think same. about is winter. Winter is coming and <laughs> it's like getting more gray and dull. Yeah. How's everybody? Makes me kind of sad. How's everybody enjoying the 5 p.m. pitch darkness these days? Oh, I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously, why do we have daylight savings time? <laughs> it yeah. makes no sense, right? Yeah. Well, I was it standard time first and then savings time after? Because I, I think what we want is we want all year round daylight savings time, right? We don't want to. Uh, I, I don't know. For me, I just don't want a time change. Yeah, <laughs> I just exactly. Want everything to stay the same. You yeah. can You can stop after the, the one change or stop after the other, but just stop changing my dog hates the time change she now at so it used to be at seven o'clock she was like okay time for me to get fed she gets like egg and pumpkin and now it's like six o'clock when i'm trying to eat my dinner she is complaining so loudly oh it's just annoying <laughs> she didn't get exactly. the memo <laughs> she will not adjust she is not a flexible dog <laughs> <laughs> exactly pets like animals and pets they don't know about time changes it doesn't make any sense to them mm. and here we are imposing <laughs> time changes yeah the dog's just like why human change what they're doing make no sense <laughs> confuse confuse <Yeah. laughs> two weeks after a time change and she still will not wait until seven o'clock <laughs> <laughs> so you have to wait until when is the next time change april yeah. Like that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I'm counting down days till. <laughs> but you know, once it hits April, what if she gets like used to the yeah, new she just get routine? Used to it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's made a little bit easier because the days get longer, so I think that she sort of understands um, you know, time a little bit better versus right now where there's only this small gap of time during the day where we have daylight, right? So, yeah, so I think she she has trouble adjusting to that in general. Poor puppy. There must be a petition, right, somewhere <laughs> I, to I'm sure there push is. for this. <laughs> I thought I read that uh, that the talks had gone pretty, pretty far towards stopping the changing aspect, that next time we hit savings time, that's it. We're not doing anything else with the time in Ontario and... I think a couple other provinces as well. I don't know. See, the I think the people that ultimately will decide this, it's going to be the U.S. Mm. Yeah. Our economy revolves around the U.S. Everything revolves around them. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. needs to adopt it before we adopt it. Yeah. It can't be an hour difference of, hey, your shipment is arriving at 8 p.m. Which 8 p.m. is it? <laughs> <laughs> U.S. or Canada? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and think about TV shows. I mean, people are going to be so confused when 
I don't know. What, what's the popular TV show now? Squid Survivor? Game. I don't know. <laughs> it's a Netflix show. You can't, you can't say that. Oh, uh, yeah. I guess you, you can watch this anytime. TV. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Bachelorette. Uh, Bachelor? <laughs> there you go. There. There's going to be uproar <laughs> if, people <don't, laughs> if people don't know when to watch it. There should we sure would be in our house. <laughs> yeah. No, knowing, knowing the U.S., though, you know. If a Democrat proposes it, it's going to be some kind of like communist. Yeah, uh, it's a conspiracy. Uh, yeah, kind of communist conspiracy to change the time zone to I don't know, match it to Russia. I don't know. Yeah, they'll make up something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh goodness. Oh well. But uh, recently, uh, there was a climate a summit that brought all the world together. And, you know, everyone seemed like it, everyone felt good about coming together to talk about climate change. Uh, so, but uh, there were definitely some uh, protests against the, the lack of action mm. uh, from uh, activists. So since we had this climate change uh, summit, uh, we want to talk about some topics around climate change. So, Sherry... What's well, the history of climate change? What the hell happened? <laughs> I wonder if we should like take our own temperature prior to this discussion and then at the end of this discussion to see if we can feel a little bit better. Our mood can increase just a little bit. Oh, gosh. Because <laughs> it's going to go down before it goes up. Just a heads up. <laughs> um, I feel pretty good. <laughs> I'm, I'm checking myself. I'm, I'm pretty good. Oh, I don't feel great about it. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Okay. We have a pretty long history with climate change, uh, surprisingly. Um, you know, if you think back to even, you know, the ancient Greeks where people thought they could control temperatures by influencing, you know, chopping down trees and plowing fields and irrigating deserts and things like that. So um, we had this idea that we could control the climate. So that that's always kind of been there. I think that we have this complex as humans that we are gods of our world and can control things. But it was really in the 1800s that people started kind of experimenting with this idea that humans produce CO2 gases um, and they collect in the atmosphere and sort of insulate the earth. Um, so it goes back a lot longer than even I thought, because, you know, when you think about climate change now, you think about in the year 2000s, about how it's developed and become this very uh, politicized and um, sort of popular thing. Um, but back in 1820, there was a French mathematician and physicist, and his name was Joseph Fourier. Uh, and he proposed that energy reaching the planet as sunlight must be balanced by energy returning to space since heated surfaces emit radiation. Uh, but some of that energy must be held within the atmosphere and not return to space, keeping Earth warm. So this was our first introduction to greenhouse gases, right? So he equated it to a greenhouse where the light comes in and heats uh, the greenhouse um, get, like getting trapped inside, right? So we have that thin glass atmosphere almost uh, that keeps energy inside. The the timing of this, is that pretty well, is that the start or is that when the industrial revolution was like full swing at that point? 
I'm trying to remember. It's Industrial Revolution, I always just think 1800, but I, I think it actually started late 1700s and then yeah. into the 1800s. And, yeah. It's probably the middle of, or maybe even towards the end of Industrial Revolution. Because I know a lot of a lot of this climate stuff seems to be sparked by Industrial Revolution. Yeah, uh, and those stuff. dirty, yeah. dirty, dirty factories that were yeah. cropping up everywhere. Well, well people, people started noticing that air quality was getting a lot yeah, more exactly. poor. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we have our first sort of oversimplification of what greenhouse gases are. And uh, then in the 1860s, we have an Irish scientist named John Tyndall, and he did a lab test that showed that coal gas, so containing CO2, methane, and some volatile hydrocarbons, um, were especially effective at absorbing energy. And so he demonstrated that CO2 alone acted like a sponge in the way it could absorb multiple wavelengths of sunlight. Yeah, so again, thinking about, you know, how much pollution we're creating from the Industrial Revolution. And then moving forward uh, in 1985, hang on, can I double check this? Fact checking is good by me. I'm sorry. Give me a second. But while while you're fact checking, let me ask a question. What percentage of our atmosphere do you think actually makes up carbon dioxide? Oh, I don't want to look like a fool. <laughs> Even with climate, uh, with you know all of our emissions that are going into the atmosphere, if you were to make a guess, uh, what percentage would carbon dioxide? Don't look it up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to look silly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, can, I can see you trying to look it up. <laughs> I'll, I'll just I'll just throw a... Just give me a number. I'll just throw 60% out there. 60? 60. Okay. 75? Would you be surprised if I said it's actually 0.04%? Percent? Mm-hmm. What is our atmosphere made of if not... It, carbon dioxide is actually a trace gas. It's a trace gas. So uh, the bulk of our uh, atmosphere is nitrogen and oxygen. Okay. Is that ideal uh, or is that today? Like, no, that's, that's, to, that's I, ideal slash today. Uh, so it's interesting uh, uh, why some people... It was maybe a little bit challenging for people to understand... Uh, the severity of carbon dioxide. Normally, when you hear, of, uh, if you watch like a documentary, Inconvenient Truth, they talk about uh, carbon dioxide in parts per million. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why they do that. It's because that gives you a big number. Uh, if you give it just purely by percentage, it's pretty tiny. But a tiny percentage of our ga- the gases in our atmosphere are responsible for insulating <laughs> Our atmosphere, and when you think about you know the ozone uh, uh, hole that was formed uh, in Antarctica back in the eighties, was caused by very very tiny percentages of CFCs. Very very tiny. Like it only takes a tiny amount to kind of create a large systematic effect uh, in our atmosphere. If you really think about it, Sherry, you had mentioned about atmosphere being this thin layer uh, on Earth. It it's pretty thin, like in reality, in the grand scheme of things. And 
it doesn't take much to kind of disrupt our atmosphere. So, anyways, that's a quiz. It, Thank nice you to know for, the, for, today. for the trivia there, Kenny. <laughs> yeah, no, that was interesting. Um, okay, so it's. 1895. So 1895, we have a Swedish chemist, uh, Svant Arrhenius, and uh, he looked at decreasing levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, um, having the ability to cool the earth. So he was looking at, you know, the past ice ages that we've had um, and wondered if we had a decrease in volcanic activity, if that was going to lower global CO2 levels. Um, and so his calculations showed that if CO2 levels were halved, global temperatures would decrease by about five degrees Celsius. And then he did the reverse of that. And if CO2 levels were doubled, the global temperatures would increase by five degrees. Interestingly enough, um, we have since found that his climate modeling was actually pretty accurate. So interesting that in, you know, 1895, we have this climate modeling that seems to still kind of hold up in in some ways. Um, Yeah. And so at the time, maybe maybe I'll I'll oppose it to you too. Do you think he saw this as a good thing? Uh, If our CO2 was doubling, we would get an increase in five degrees? Or did you think he saw this as a bad thing? I'm going to guess good thing, maybe? Yeah, I'm going to guess good thing too. He he thinks it's going to bring a nicer climate. Yeah, so here's what he said. By the influence of the increasing percentage of carbonic acid, CO2, in the atmosphere, we may hope to enjoy ages with more equable and better climates, mm-hmm. especially in regards the cooler, the colder regions of the Earth. So... This was seen as a great thing. <laughs> Let's warm up the climate. Because <laughs> then we get more warm weather. <laughs> yes, yes. Increase mm-hmm. the temperate zone. Of course, that's how it will work. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. So, um, you know, these sorts of things were happening, you know, towards the turn of the 1900s, right? And then we get into 1939. We have a... British engineer named Guy Stewart Callender, and he was pretty uh, famous. He um, noted that the United States and North Atlantic region had warmed significantly on the heels of the Industrial Revolution. So he looks back at the Industrial Revolution, notices how significantly um, our climate has warmed. Um, And people were pretty skeptical of Callender's claims. Um, But he did draw some public attention to... Uh, the possibility of a global warming. And so with that attention, we had some of the first government-funded projects to monitor climate and CO2 levels, which is, you know, a good thing. Um, And most famously, we had the monitoring station that was established in 1958 by the Scripps Institution of Ocean uh, Ocean Oceanography. Sorry, <laughs> sometimes when you see words, it doesn't quite equate. Oceanography, <laughs> and it's on top of Hawaii's um, Mauna Mauna Loa Observatory. Sorry, I'm really bad at pronouncing things today. Um, but it's in Hawaii. That's all. That's all we care about. It's it's on like a top of a you know mountain for some some observatory. So we have that sort of established, and and um, there's a Scripps geochemist named Charles Keeling, 
and he was instrumental in outlining a way to record the CO2 levels uh, and securing funding for the observatory. So uh, when we got some data back from that observatory, it revealed this like upward uh, sawtooth shaped curve. Uh, so if you look at it, it's kind of, you know, jagged, uh, showing a steady rise in the CO2 levels, along with short jagged up and down levels of gas. Um, produced. And that's known as the Keeling curve. So he had a curve that's named after him, which is pretty cool. I think that's what you want in your life is to have something named after you. <laughs> you know, you've made it when. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And when it's a graph, I mean, how beautiful can that, right? you know, graph, graphs are just beautiful to look at. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that is the Keeling curve that, you know, we can see sort of represented if you look at, um, what has the CO2 levels looked like over the last, you know, couple hundred years or whatever, you'll see this, this jagged sort of thing. So in the 1960s, uh, we started to have an advancement in computer modeling because computers started to become more readily available. And they were able to, computers were able to start to predict the outcomes of the rise of CO2 levels, um, made evident by obviously the Keeling curve. And so in the early 1970s, people started to worry about global cooling because they saw this cooling off of the earth. Um, and so uh, people thought at the time and scientists thought that pollution could block the sunlight and cool the earth. Mm. So there was this cooling that happened from 1940 to 1970. However, we found out later the reason for this cooling uh, was a post-war uh, boom in aerosol pollutants, which reflect sunlight away from the planet. Uh, so it was the aerosols that were sort of causing this cooling uh, in the earth. And um, aerosols are not good for our atmosphere. So obviously things got exponentially worse after that. <laughs> Whenever I hear aerosols, I always just think of hairspray. There's more aerosols, so I'm <laughs> yes. sure. Yes, it was. It wasn't just millions of people spraying <laughs> <Millions> of hairspray. <laughs> oh, the war's over. <laughs> let's get. Let's let's start looking pretty again. Yep, yep. I think there was also. I don't know if it was air conditioners or something that were creating some really bad. It might have been aerosols, but I'm not sure. It was a specific pollutant. Yeah. The, yeah. In in the. Um, in the past, I don't remember when exactly, but really once the adoption of air conditioners went up, um, the refrigerant that was used in air conditioners, um, it does vaporize if it leaks. Um, and obviously it gets into the atmosphere and um, it's a ozone depleting gas. Very similar to in the past, hairspray was also a culprit. Yes. <laughs> Among one of many. <laughs> yes. So there was this idea that the pollutants could block the sun and cause the cooling effect. And there was even a Time Magazine article that was titled, Another Ice Age? So there was a time where we thought we might have another ice age. <laughs> How wrong we were. <laughs> I don't know. I, I saw the day after tomorrow where the, the ice shelf melted and it caused <laughs> the Atlantic current to shut down and the world froze. Mm. Global I warming, yeah. ice I age. I didn't see that movie. 
that that's very Hollywood. <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> yes. So after that brief brief cooling period uh, ended, we had temperatures resuming their upward climb. And in the early 1980s, we had a sharp increase in global temperatures. So the summer of 1988 was the hottest on record at the time. And there were a lot of wildfires around the U.S. Obviously, since then, most years that we have um, are the hottest recorded year. Uh, So we are clearly in a very uh, significant upward climb of our temperature. But at the time, that was very significant. Then 1989, we have the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Uh, And this was established under the United Nations to provide a scientific view of climate change and its political and economic impacts. So uh, this is when we have governments coming together and starting to say, okay, this is maybe a problem. We maybe have to look into this, kind (laughs) of. They weren't. They weren't for fully there yet. <laughs> we're not. Yeah. yeah. Even now, I don't think we're at the point of like, oh, we really need to do something. <laughs> we definitely don't have all governments on board. Yeah. But in reality, I mean, we're gonna lose Florida due to oceans rises. So, is it really a big loss? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I could live with it if it was just Florida. <laughs> I, I could. I could live with Florida disappearing. <laughs> live with it if Mar-a-Lago was under the sea level, that's fine. (laughs) It definitely will. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so as global warming is gaining some popularity, like you were talking about, Kenny, researchers are predicting uh, so a few different things. So we've got severe heat waves, droughts, more powerful hurricanes, uh, fueled by rising sea temperatures. Um, Also, you know, massive glaciers at the poles are going to melt and sea Levels are going to rise uh, enough to swamp many of the cities along the U.S. East Coast by 2100. So we have that to look forward to maybe sooner rather than later. (laughs) Yeah, so lots of uh, U.S. coastal cities uh, finding themselves underwater. Yeah, so then uh, we move into the 90s. So 1997, we have the Kyoto Protocol was established. So government leaders gathered together, they discussed ways to prevent some of the worst outcomes uh, of climate change and decided on ways to reduce greenhouse gases. Um, So at the time, Bill Clinton signed the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, However, when George Bush entered office in 2001, he promptly announced that he's not going to implement the Kyoto Protocol, uh, citing economic reasons. Uh, And also in 2001, the IPCC uh, issued its third report on climate change, saying that global warming is very likely with highly damaging future impacts. Um, yeah, so this is, I mean, this is when you're getting more of the uh, public consciousness of hearing about climate change and, and things like that. In Canada, we ratified the Kyoto Protocol into Parliament in 2002, Uh, But we actually increased our emissions by 30%, and then we withdrew from the Kyoto uh, Agreement in 2011. So (laughs) we definitely went backwards. Mm -hmm. And in order to not face that embarrassment, we were like, we're just going to (laughs) withdraw. Yeah. Because we just did 30% more than we should have. You can't fail at something that you're not participating in. (laughs) Ha ha ha! Exactly. (laughs) 
Um, and then 2006, we see uh, Vice President Al Gore release An Inconvenient Truth, um, which you referenced earlier. And it won a, and sorry, he won a Nobel, Nobel Peace Prize. And critics argued that the predictions in An Inconvenient Truth were overblown. So in 2006, we were having people who were climate deniers sort of saying, it's overblown, it's not real, it's just, you know, them trying, it's just the liberals trying to own us again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So then, 2015, we have the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, So we all signed that, Barack Obama, Trudeau, everyone kind of signed that, and countries pledged to set targets for their own green greenhouse gas cuts and to self-report their progress. What could go wrong there? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe a new election here and there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that. And also, if you're self-reporting your own progress, like, there may be countries who are going to fudge their reports. <clears throat> China. Oh. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that's a cough. I apologize. <laughs> So Donald Trump was elected in 2016, as you mentioned, uh, and he uh, promptly withdrew. So the election caused him to, caused America to withdraw from the Paris Treaty, uh, and he cited onerous restrictions, which could not be his words, (laughs) imposed by the treaty and that the U.S. was being punished because, yeah, I don't know. No, really what he said was, this this treaty is nasty. <laughs> nasty, nasty treaty. That, I, bigly want, I bigly want to get out of this treaty. That sounds much more his style. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, since the Paris Treaty uh, in August of 2018, we had Greta Thunberg and she began protesting Uh, And, you know, made international news headlines. Um, And she went to the UN uh, Climate Summit in New York in 2019 and famously arrived by boat uh, across the Atlantic instead of flying because she wanted to reduce uh, her carbon footprint. Which I think is great because I actually did hear a statistic recently that was like uh, one international flight um uses or creates the same emissions as uh as does one person driving their car in an entire year. Mm. So there's a lot of emissions that are created from an international flight. So good for her for taking a boat. Uh it probably took her a long time, but she's a student. She's got the time, I'm assuming, uh to do that. <laughs> um and then to finish off our history in 2021, so this year, we saw the COP26 summit where we once again signed on to reduce emissions to get to net zero by 2050, and we shall see what happens. Yeah. You, you don't sound very hopeful. <laughs> Me? No. <laughs> yeah. But maybe uh, I'll give some commentary here, just just from my own personal perspective. Um but I think one thing that frustrates me sometimes is when we talk about climate change, we always frame it as some kind of like extinction level event. Like it's going to be some kind of extinction level event. But I don't think there's any evidence to show that it is an extinction level event. But it is very detrimental to human society as we know today because all of our infrastructure, our lives have been built on 
the notion that our climate isn't going to radically change, meaning our shorelines aren't going to change, our weather patterns aren't going to change drastically. That's why, you know, we have communities built in certain places because we assume that this is not going to be flooded, for Mm -hmm. example. But because of climate change, I mean, how our uh, environmental uh, the environmental factors like weather, floods, water flow, it's all changing because of climate, uh, because of climate change. And that's going to cause significant disruption in our lives. And I feel like the, the best argument is to talk about how it's going to impact our lives, not necessarily how it's some kind of like world ending kind of a catastrophe. I don't know. Anyways, I, I say that because sometimes I hear even things like, Oh, you know, where climate change is causing is going to cause X amount of uh, species extinction and things like that. The the thing is, species are going to adapt. Like animals are going to adapt, and we're it's just animals will always adapt to kind of the changes in climate because climate changes all the time. Anyway, it's just that we are accelerating that process through our artificial uh, emissions. Are you sure though that? plants and animals are going to adapt because from what I understand, we are, because we are exponentially changing the planet or changing the planet at an exponential rate that they don't have enough time to adapt. No, they'll adapt. I know they'll adapt because we've had extinction level events before and they always adapt. So some of them adapt. It's just that. Tell that to the dinosaurs. (laughs) Yeah. Some of them will adapt, but the thing is like, Life will go on. But my, I think the key message for me is the planet is going to be fine. Like the planet will keep going. I'm more concerned about us, yeah. <laughs> human beings. Me too. How, whether we are going to uh, survive in the long run. Because what I always um, would go back to in terms of maybe not an extinction level event, but a, a mass death event is, well, what if California turns into a big arid desert and we don't get all of our produce from them anymore? Am I on the preferred list of people who gets their food rations or am I one of the nobodies who's just left to fend for themselves and starve? So I I don't think climate change is a minimal enough threat that we can just be like, oh, it's going to be disruptive and there'll be some flooding on some coastal cities, but that'll be okay. I'm more concerned with food supply chains when I think about the more catastrophic events of climate change. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, I'm more concerned about the disruption in our lives, like the food. Yeah, yeah. Like food. I mean, the most important things, housing. Like who, I, I don't even know whether, like, for example, London, are we safe from, you know, a climate changing event? I know Florida's not safe. <laughs> so for any, for anyone who, you know, owns a property in Florida, I, if I were them, I would be most concerned about climate change. Yeah, you'd think. It directly affects them. There are there are canary in the coal mine. They're they're going down first. And really, in the, in the bigger picture here, uh, really, the people that will be most affected will be um, uh, emerging countries or kind of poor countries because they're just not going to have enough money to adapt to climate mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. No. The way we've set up our social structures in this in this world is that we have really um, oppressed these third world or so-called third world countries and, you know, forced them to, um, 
you know, uh, deplete their soils and, and all of this stuff that is harming their environment so that they can farm huge cash crops and things like that. Um, and I, I worry about them for sure, especially, you know, because they often have government structures that are, are weaker and, and more likely to crumble should there be some sort of issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bleak. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'll also um, maybe call out, yes, you know, there's definitely um, conservatives who are pushing the anti-climate change agenda. Um, but I will maybe just call out um, some people who I would assume are progressives, but are, in my opinion, hindering the fight <laughs> against climate change. Um, and I'll, I'll just call it broadly as a country, as a country like Germany, for example, which, you know, they, uh, back in uh, the uh, 2010s, you know, announced they are going renewable. Uh, they're going to shut down their nuclear power plants. They're going to switch to renewable. But what actually happened is they went ahead to shut down uh, nuclear power, which was emitting zero carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and realized they didn't have enough energy to keep their population warm <laughs> in the winter time and then decide to open up coal power plants. Oh. Uh, and, <laughs> and now they have put in additional 60, uh, 36 million tons of carbon dioxide per year. Uh, so they increased their emissions. Um, the social cost of this is about $12 billion per year because now because of coal emissions, you have more uh, respiratory issues, um, uh, cancer, death, etc. So, uh, and then at the same time, uh, because they had to do that, uh, Greta Thunberg then started protesting that they're opening up new coal plants. And it feels like it's just an endless cycle where uh, they, they think they're doing the right thing they make a mistake, realize, nope, we, we're going to have people, you know, freeze to death <laughs> or not have power. Then they do the wrong thing. And it just keeps going on and on. And it's uh, it, it feels like sometimes people mean well, but I feel like you got to you got to listen to the science. <laughs> you know, the, the science clearly states uh, open coal power plants is bad. But we have technologies that we have to keep going, right, while we transition to uh, renewable. So, um, and, and for example, like, even if, let's say, they uh, they made a pledge to, we'll transition to natural gas. Yes, you know, we, we don't want natural gas forever. But natural gas is so much cleaner than coal fire plants. So, um, I'm, I'm okay if people have a plan. But uh, we, yeah. we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be... Uh, protesting against a natural gas plant if we think we at least have a plan to you know get to uh, net carbon zero I, I feel like we just need to make sure everyone's on the same page in terms of it's a journey we and we gotta you know uh, have a plan to move towards uh, net zero yeah I think you're absolutely right Kenny that you can't skip any steps you have to have the groundwork laid to make a big transition away from the fossil fuel energy dependency that we currently have, you know, here and in Germany and elsewhere, that best intentions aren't enough to just jump away from the energy sources that we're using right now. It has to be planned out, mapped out, and 
be operational before you start shutting down your your power plants. I was going to redirect the conversation at this point and uh, take us in a a bit different direction because I was pretty interested when we brought up this topic about uh, finding the source of some of the climate deniers that still exist out there in the world to various degrees. Do any of you know a climate denier? I don't personally know. I do. I do. You you do. (laughs) I do. Yeah. My father-in-law. Oh my goodness. A climate denier. Does he post on Facebook? (laughs) No, he's not really on Facebook. Okay. He uh, is part of the um, airplane industry. So he doesn't fly planes anymore. He used to fly planes, but now he does like some teaching stuff in terms of flight and so i'm not surprised that he's a cloud climate denial but we try and push it a little bit so that he can <laughs> see some reason but like you you can't make somebody see reason who didn't come to their understanding based on logic and science so but you can still believe in climate change and be a pilot doesn't i mean yeah but then you'd have to feel People... bad about it kenny you'd have to be like i'm part of the problem <laughs> yeah but i drive a car uh, yes, I know you I'm do. contributing. I yes. look at you and say. <laughs> but we're talking about a rich white uh boomer generation person who it doesn't I don't know. It doesn't even matter. Climate change doesn't even matter to him because he's going to be around maybe 20 more years and Yeah. Yeah. But my client uh climate change denier person is a young person. Oh. So like Mm. younger than me well that's even more depressing it spans the (laughs) spectrum also believes in flat earth maybe and anti-vax they're all related (laughs) definitely anti-vax it's anti anti vax uh, anti uh uh, well climate change denier uh i haven't seen anything about flat earth but i would not be surprised (laughs) they usually come in threes (laughs) yeah it's a package deal a lot of the time you get them all you get them all when you get one (laughs) <laughs> yeah. They are anti um uh Biden. So lot lots of uh let's go Brandon mm. type of posts. I was gonna make so. that joke. You made it before I could get there. <laughs> I I haven't heard the joke. Was that the joke? <laughs> what? <laughs> you don't know what let's let's go Brandon is? No. <laughs> no. I guess I'm under a rock. <laughs> You'll have to look it up later. All right, all right. (laughs) It's your homework. (laughs) Can do. All right, well, let me delve into my sourcing of of some of the climate deniers. I'm sure they come from from many different places, but here's one that I think is significant. And so to start things off, let me dispel what, what some people like to call the great capitalist lie. And that is that corporations and society exist in a state of perfect competition with one another. They do not. They are organized. They are interlocking. They exist in a network of corporate power. Surprise. Yeah. (laughs) It's not earth shattering to some, but uh, it's a taken for granted lie that others are subscribed to. Now, this idea that each company is totally independent is honestly just as oversimplified as saying that every person is a self-made man or woman. It just, it doesn't happen. You exist in a network. You exist with connections, family, friends, relationships, networks, interactions, whether you want to acknowledge them or not, they exist. They exist for people, they exist for corporations. So it also shouldn't come as a surprise that corporate power extends into the civil and political parts of society. 
and overrides much of what we pride in our democracy. Again, rather than everyone who has a stake in something like a clean environment and low pollution having an equal say, instead we have the perspectives of those with the most capital receiving the most privilege. We listen to them the clearest. So corporate influence tends to be used to protect investments and profit streams and minimize the impacts of taxes, regulations, and unions. One of the tactics they use to accomplish this is to create a pro-business culture. For example, the oil industry in Alberta has created a cultural framework that justifies using the tar sands as economically necessary to secure Canada's global political status. So media analyses over time show that the Canadian media has unfortunately continually shifted its focus away from climate change consequences, maybe not so much in the very, very recent media, but at the time of this study, which I think is a 2020 study, they'd shifted away from climate change consequences and toward business interests and economic consequences, as well as projected impacts on day-to-day life, like the cost of gasoline is going up. I need to drive my car car to get to work. This is going to suck for you as a person if we make these changes. Do you think that'll make a better impact? Because before it was just like, you know, globally things are going to change we're going to have droughts and stuff like that but like here in london it doesn't affect me whereas now they're like you said they're focusing more i mean especially right now we're talking about the supply chain and how you know costs at the grocery store are going up and things mm-hmm. like that do you think that might have a better impact versus the way we were, we've been talking about it for the last 20 years well, it'll depend on how it's framed right like if we put pressure on shifting away from oil and gas, and then the cost of gasoline goes up as a consequence, then the people driving cars are going to be upset about that. If, you know, food supply starts to be disrupted and the cost of groceries goes up for certain products, then people are going to be upset about that in the opposite direction. And, you know, maybe demand that we do something about climate change. You know, it's a complex interaction. It's hard to, to peg it to one direction or another. But things that can also be used to continue uh, increasing our carbon emissions, right? So, yeah. I mean, if you're uh, if you're able to reframe our gas prices in terms of, well, this is why you need to have continued investments into the oil sands. Exactly. Otherwise, yeah, your mm-hmm. gas price is going to increase. Yeah. So obviously, the the carbon sector is pushing that angle of don't disrupt our business, or it's going to cost you at the pumps. And also, before I move on, I, I want to mention that. Another downplayed social consequence is the frequent consequences that development projects have on local indigenous peoples who, every story you read, it seems like there's another pipeline being driven through indigenous lands. It's sad what we've done to our First Nations communities, and we just keep doing it. No lessons learned here. Oh, there's, a, there's a lot of money behind oil and gas, as I'm about to get into. So the article I read was called The Corporate Elite and the Architecture of Climate Denial, which was just so attractive that I had to read this. (laughs) It's right up your alley. (laughs) (laughs) So it, it focused specifically on the carbon capital industry. That's oil, gas, uh, bitumen, which is asphalt, you know, that sticky black stuff that we pave our driveways with, the semi-solid form of petro and coal. And it talks about their extraction, transport, and processing. And the focus is, of course, on their links to governance bodies and key civil society organizations. So over the last 
50 years or so in Canada, the high oil sector profits made possible in part by the low royalties payments that they're, they're incurring have attracted a lot of attention from investors groups. Canada's energy exports grew four times in this 50-year period. In 2012, there were 405 oil and gas companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange that had a market capitalization of about $380 billion. So their size and power puts them in a head-on collision with Canada's climate goals of keeping the global temperature increase below 1.5 degrees Celsius. So they had to construct a pretty comprehensive ideology to legitimate their growing carbon footprint, one that they intend to grow because they have to continue growing the investments. So how did they do it? Well, they formed what can be called a denial regime, along with their political allies and right-wing think tanks and policy groups. Now, you may remember, this is crazy, because we're all old enough to remember that they started out with hard denialism in the face of the scientific evidence. Climate change just isn't happening. doesn't exist. It's a complete fabrication. And that was their, their go-to line for, gosh, a significant period of time. But lately, the overwhelming, uncontestable scientific consensus about climate change has caused them to evolve and shift to a more of more sort of soft denialism, meaning they, they stopped claiming climate change isn't real and they started promoting policies that can appear like reasonable responses but don't actually cause any disruption to carbon industries. I'll list three of the more typical of these stage two responses. You might recognize some. One, we'll be more efficient with carbon extraction and consumption. So efficiency is the key. If we do that, no problem. Two, new technologies for carbon capture are going to save us. These new techs are just on the cusp and we don't have to worry about climate change. Tech will handle it. And three, small, slow, incremental change is the best strategy to avoid hurting the workers in the energy sector. So you put a friendly worker face on this and he's going to be hurt if you go ahead and pursue these aggressive green energy projects. As per the findings in this article... What percentage of carbon industries do you think, or you would say, interlock or have ties to civil society groups, including political representatives? What percentage do you think? Yeah, 100. Yeah, I was going to say 100. <laughs> I was inclined to think that too, to be totally 120%. honest. 120%. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But uh, the article found connections to about seven in 10 industries, so still more than two-thirds, having elite-level ties to important policy planners in Canadian society. I'm not convinced it's 70%. I'm convinced <laughs> there's probably some secret. Seven in 10 in the pocket, yeah. more like. <laughs> no, I, I mean, in reality, the oil and gas industry is interwoven into everything. I'm sure. really... Yeah, really. When you think about it, I mean, the, any even commodity stuff. Um, so, plastics. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, you, you can't have plastic without without petrol oil and gas industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, every everything we have, like you look around your room, right? Everything in my room is made from yeah <laughs> the fossil fuel industry yeah. or from uh, the commodities from the fossil fuel industry. Some part of it for sure. So I think. Yeah, to that uh, degree, it probably depends on how you define your term, like interlocking and, you know, part of it. it. I think what they're going for is influence on 
decision makers. But yeah, if you mm-hmm. talk about like direct money yeah, being yeah. handed to them, if you're talking about you know, can you find a, a thing in your house that doesn't in some way come in contact with the the petro industry, then yeah, good luck. Another thing I wanted to touch on as a post-secondary student is the post-secondary institution with the strongest ties to big carbon. I'll give you one guess each which in, which institution you think is that it is. Is it in Canada or the U.S.? Thinking post-secondary, like they're fronting as an educational institution. Uh, and it's, I believe it's Canada, yeah. Fronting as a post-secondary education, but they're not I'm, a post-secondary? <laughs> I, I'm... I'm being uh, cruel to them. They <laughs> they are legitimate. They are an institution <laughs> that I I don't have much respect for, so I say fronting. But okay, so not the one you go to. Okay, unless unless you have no respect for the one you go to. <laughs> They're not at the level of this one. <laughs> okay, so a different one, probably in Alberta, University of Alberta, if there is such a university. <laughs> I'm sure there is, but uh, not who we're thinking of this time. What do you got, Kenny? I can't think of any, because I, I just assume they're all <laughs> legitimate. <laughs> there absolutely is an influence of uh, of the carbon sector in every university. They pump funding into pretty well all of them. So you could... Oh, I know. My, my degree, uh, I took I had an engineering degree, and I was definitely steered towards hey petrochemical yeah, yeah. you know because we're so close to sardia blah blah, blah. so oh wait 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 because yeah okay so thinking about the border <laughs> thinking about like sarnia windsor detroit maybe it's university of windsor are you trying to cheat an extra guess in there sherry <laughs> <laughs> I'm hypothesizing. Why am I not allowed to, you know, make make guesses? Sherry, Sherry can take my guess. Sherry can take your guess. University of Windsor. Uh, you two are both ignoring the elephant in the room. It's the Fraser Institute. Of course, it's the Fraser Institute. Where's the Fraser Institute? Why? I don't know much about the Fraser Institute. The Fraser Institute is bought and paid for by Carbon. They are based in. And they're like Frasier? frequent, uh, <laughs> frequent right wing. Uh, or yeah, where are they? Politically conservative and libertarian. That's always the kind of you know quote unquote research that they put out. Uh, I'm trying to find their actual location. Vancouver. Vancouver. Yeah, headquarters oh. location is in Vancouver. Mm. So you would have guessed Alberta. I mean, Alberta is certainly the epicenter of all things pro carbon oil gas, but. Uh, Fraser Institute, the the high conservative stronghold, is apparently Vancouver. Hmm. And they interlock with several other high-profile institutions, such as the Ottawa-based Canadian Foundation for Innovation and the Calgary-based Canada West Foundation. And to quote the article now, the close links between industry and industry groups, research institutes, and key post-secondaries point to what we have termed a carbon-centric scientific industrial complex embodying a close alignment of interests between carbon capital and academic research communities, which enables big carbon to reap both the symbolic benefit of association with impartial science and the material benefit of subsidized research and development. So that's why they own these groups and pump money into them and steer Kenny towards doing oil research. (laughs) (laughs) 
they have a podcast. <laughs> I feel like I should listen to it. <laughs> These days, everyone has a podcast. Everyone's got a podcast. <laughs> okay, I, I'm going to close this out with something a little bit more fun. It's, a, it's an article I read in The Guardian on the four types of climate denier. They are the shill, the grifter, the egomaniac, and the ideological fool. Maybe we can categorize you two's friends into one of these uh, one to these categories. All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> now I should note the article starts or author starts out with a disclaimer that the science is clear, the severity understood at the highest levels everywhere, and serious debates about what to do are turning into action. The deniers have nothing to contribute to this. However, how infuriating they are, arguing with them or debunking their theories is likely only to generate publicity or money for them. It also helps generate a fake air of controversy over climate action. So I'm not bringing up any denier theories for precisely that reason. I don't want to lend any credence to them or make them think, make our listeners consider the possibility that these people have a leg to stand on. They don't. They're ridiculous. And so we're just going to talk about the types of human beings who engage in this behavior. The shill is the easiest to understand. He, and it is almost always a he, is paid by vested interests to admit clouds of confusion about the science or economics of climate action. And this uncertainty creates a smokescreen behind which polluters can lobby against measures that cut into their profits. So that's who the shill is. He's paid to create this nonsense. But next we have a more tragic figure, the grifter. The grifters have found themselves earning a living by grinding out contrarian articles for right-wing media outlets. Do they actually believe the guff they write? It doesn't matter. They just warm their hands on the outrage, count the clicks, and wait for the paycheck. The Trumpers more like? Well, maybe not. Trumpers kind of strike me as true believers a lot of the time. The grifter does not give a shit whether what they write is true or not. They're just trying to sensationalize and get you to click on their article. Climate change is fake, and here's why. Mm. They, they would be easily turned in terms of if they were then being paid to say the exact opposite. Yeah. They would just, oh, okay. If, if it suddenly became more profitable for them to, to back mm. the green initiative, they'd be right there writing about how catastrophic yeah. i always believe yeah. in the green initiative <laughs> exactly all right so next we have the egomaniacs they are disappointed frustrated people whose careers have stalled and can't understand why the world refuses to give full reverence to their brilliance they are desperate for recognition and when it stubbornly refuses to arrive they are drawn to make increasingly extreme pronouncements in the hope that finally being proven a dogma-busting 21st century Galileo. So that's the egomaniac. They want to be the one who saw through all the bullshit and grabbed on that line of truth that no one else could see because they are just so brilliant that they can see it. All right. Yeah, that that best describes my kind <laughs> yeah. of denying friend. <laughs> that's the... For whatever reason, they see the truth. They want to like post it on Facebook and everyone else is being mis misled by, I don't know, liberals? By the those liberal propagandists, yes. But they see it. They can see it when no one else can. It's the kind of like my father-in-law where he thinks that he knows the truth more so than scientists, apparently. 
but he doesn't like he doesn't have that ego involved with it. Yeah. So he's only like half of this guy. Oh, this well, just wait, Sherry. Oh, okay. Maybe there's the, another this option. Number okay. four may fit him perfectly. Okay. <laughs> so number four is the ideological fool. The ideological fool is the fourth type of climate denier, and they can be intelligent, but they are utterly blinded by their inane, no-limits version of free market creed. The climate emergency requires coordinated global action, they observe, and that looks horribly like communism in disguise. Mm. They could explore the many credible climate action plans being pursued, including those by the political right, but their cognitive dissonance forces them to the conclusion that because state intervention is wrong... Acting to avert climate danger cannot be right. Intellectual gymnastics to expose climate alarmism then follow naturally. Yeah, you, okay, you're right to ask me to wait. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably more more so him. But, like, I don't know, he's got a little bit of it all. He's got a little bit of, like, financial interest in believing that climate ah. change isn't, isn't real. But he also has, you know, yeah, he believes. <laughs> got a little bit of that. ideology. Yeah. yeah. Well, so all of the above. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, yeah. this this leads to my most important question, or not really, but I'll say it anyways. Which of these personalities, and one of which you two know a person in your own relationships, which of these personalities do you think you'd be least likely to have a beer with? I turned it on. Least hey, likely? I was going to go most likely. Now I'm saying least likely. Which person could you not stand the most? If you were going to have to sit down and have a beer with them. The megalomaniac. <laughs> the egomaniac? Egomaniac, yeah. Desperate for recognition. They see the truth and they've cut through the bullshit. Yeah. 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 That would annoy me the most. <laughs> the person I would most likely have a beer with would be the grifter. Because I want to know, how can I make that money too? <laughs> Where can I get some of that money? <laughs> get me in on this. <laughs> exactly. I think I would go with the like the very first one, the denialist. Was that like even an option? Because you said uh, like there are people who just deny it and like have no sense behind it. Well, uh, we got um, we got the shill, and they're the one oh. who purposely spreads confusion and you know creates the illusion that there's some kind of controversy. The grifter doesn't give a shit what they write; they just want a paycheck from it. The egomaniac is convinced they're right and that they see it, and no one else does. And the ideological fool has already made up their mind about this being a left-leaning communist conspiracy, and so they can't support it in any way or fashion. Probably the egomaniac, I think. I'd probably be like, no, thank you. We have a winner. The <laughs> egomaniac, the most that, insufferable that person. Annoys, yeah, that annoys me the most. Yeah. <laughs> well, let that yeah, be. A lack of open-mindedness definitely annoys me. Not just, but this is worse yeah, because they the think they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the arrogance, arrogance. <laughs> yeah. They think yeah. they are right. And, and no one else can me. see it. Been there, done that. No, thank you. You see, Sherry, you're just not understanding. <laughs> 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 I, I'm losing connection on this call, Rory. <laughs> I can't hear what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I, reading them now, I hadn't actually answered my own question when I wrote this, but I, I'm pretty convinced too that the egomaniac would be the worst to sit and have to listen to. So that's that's why you go on Facebook and go mute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, do you unfriend or do you just, like, hide their feed so you never see anything from them again? I 
I, I mentioned this last time in some of the other episodes, but I, I never unfriend them because I do put them on mute and make sure they don't show up on my front page. But I just like going onto their page and laughing. Yeah. Like basically, if I, if if I need some comedy, I'll like go on there. It's like a channel on TV that you don't actually want to watch and get invested in, but you'll flip to it once in a while and be like, "What kind of crazy crap is going on right now?" <laughs> Exactly. I feel like sometimes they can be useful, though. So, like, that's why I I hesitate and I just put them on mute because I'm like, maybe someday I will need something from you and you will be the right person (laughs) to guide me in the right direction. So To guide you in the right direction? If I'm looking for, I don't know, if I'm looking for, um, oh, my air conditioner broke and I need a good company good, reputable company and they, they got their air conditioner fixed in the last five years or whatever, you know, they were like, this company is that's great. To- that's totally oh, not okay. what I was thinking. I was thinking, <laughs> I, I will go to them when I need to take screenshots of their, of their Facebook feed and send it to the authorities. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> They've gone too far. Here's the proof. <laughs> there, no, there's merit in that, Sherry. I mean, nobody is, and to be a bit uncouth, nobody's stupid in all aspects of their life. We're all stupid in some ways, but nobody's stupid in every way. Everybody has some field where they are good, if not an expert. Kenny disagrees. He's the smartest <laughs> in everything. I see it on his no. face. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can be certain I'm definitely not very smart when it comes to plumbing, <laughs> um, electrical work. Yeah, that's not for me. <laughs> So that, that's what I got, guys. That's the climate denier rundown. Okay. So I feel like we need a we need an upper now. <laughs> we Absolutely. Need something to lift us out of the despair. Um, I don't have any, though. <laughs> <laughs> it sure would be so, nice, guys. but we don't have it. <laughs> talk to you again next week. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll uh, talk about some valiant efforts for people in terms of <laughs> trying to defeat climate change. I thought you were actually going to come up with some good things that we can do, but it's less uh, so that and more valiant well, efforts. <laughs> <laughs> more valiant efforts. But <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> uh, I I did run into an interesting story. You had mentioned Rory. One of the talking points uh, was about how technology will solve right. our yes climate change. Technology will save problems. us. Just wait for it. Yeah, and I think you mentioned even things like capture technologies, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there's a company in Iceland that's working on capture technology, basically being able to suck CO two out of the atmosphere. Um, and putting it into the ground. And, you know, their proposals, you know, Iceland's a great location for this because there's actually a lot of free energy in Iceland. There's lots of geothermal, so you can actually leverage geothermal energy to power your uh, plant. Hmm. And this plant basically pulls in carbon dioxide and uh, concentrates the carbon dioxide in water, and then they pump the water uh, deep into the ground, you know, kilometers deep into the ground under pressure, uh, and just the formation of the rocks down in, in Iceland. It's called a basalt a rock formation. Uh, the CO2 gets absorbed by these rocks and actually turns the CO2 into rocks. It actually hmm. uh, mineralizes the CO2. Like diamonds? So they're able to pull, not like diamonds, oh, no. Okay. It's like our. <laughs> Um, like uh, carbonic, uh, it turns the CO two turns into carbonic acid, and it turns into 
uh, mixes with calcium and mm. basically turns to another mineral. So they can mineralize, basically absorb carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere. It's powered by geothermal, so you're not actually making, you know, not generating CO2. Not building a coal plant to process. power your carbon capture plant. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, which I, I saw, I've seen some ridiculous things uh, before. I remember seeing this uh, TikTok video about this company that's promoting a ship that travels, you know, to either North or South Pole and basically takes in water, freezes, uh, desalinates the water, then freezes it and then turns it into ice to deposit into, you know, the North or South Pole. None of that makes any sense because... <laughs> A ship requires fossil fuels to operate, <laughs> and you have to not only desalinate that water, basically take the salt out of it, but then you have to freeze it. Mm. That's like dub- a double. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of energy needs energy, for this ship. That's a lot of energy. Yeah, that's twice the amount of energy you would need. So, yeah. Anyways, at least this process, you're using green energy, um, and you're absorbing the CO two. You're pumping it into the ground. It is a pretty expensive process oh dear uh the one plant would cost about 15 million dollars to build and it would suck up 4,000 tons of co2 per year now 4,000 tons in the grand scheme of things mm-hmm. uh the amount of carbon dioxide you need to remove per year to meet our 2050 goal is about several billion tons per year so i I, i'm thinking like no matter how many plants you build you're not really going to make an impact we need one on every street corner yeah i love the effort it's a valiant effort (laughs) um but i don't see number one the economics of this Mm -hmm. like who's paying for all this and why would a company exist just purely to suck co2 and put it into the rock formations in Iceland. Like, you, you can't actually replicate this anywhere else in the world. Yeah, that's what so. I was thinking. I was like, this is very specific to Iceland, and also probably doesn't take a lot out of the atmosphere. So I was thinking, yeah, those are exactly the flaws that I was thinking this had. Yeah, yeah. So, valiant effort. Yeah, good on you, Iceland. A plus for effort. You're, you're thinking the right direction anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there are other solutions that I think are maybe in the longer term might be more practical. There's obviously lots of things we can do ourselves to reduce our own uh, carbon uh, uh, carbon emissions by reducing power consumption. A lot of our power does come from fossil fuels, so reducing that I think is great. Uh, the other, uh, I think, uh, solution that people are thinking of right now is actually going back to nature. Uh, nature has a lot of solutions for mm. uh, car- uh, carbon. And uh, uh, this is where I think, you know, like genetically modified uh, organisms kind of could play a big role in this. Because one one thing GMOs can potentially do is, number one, help alter from a biomass standpoint, h- how, how much biomass is being produced by a plant, which means the more plant material you can produce, the more carbon you're actually pulling out of the atmosphere. When you think of actually carbon, every plant cell is made of cellulose, and cellulose is literally just chunks of carbon. <laughs> like, there's lots and lots of carbon in that. So being able to pull out of the atmosphere, 
I think plants are probably a better method to actually pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah, that's the direction um, I thought you were going to go. I thought you were just going to say trees. Trees are the solution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think there's a lot of like win-win stuff we can do because uh, clearly we need more food. So you need more plant materials mm-hmm. to absorb carbon. But at the same time, you don't want to uh, have you know, take defor- do a lot of deforestation uh, to actually plant more food. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the problem in Brazil right now, where uh, the Amazon rainforest, uh, the deforesta- uh, deforestation has actually soared by 22% mm. in the past year, primarily because, number one, policy. You know, obviously, the president down there is another Trumper. Yeah. Who, who cares about the environment? Let's just uh, uh, do anything we want to the environment. And... The latest study has shown that the their forest has actually been reduced by so much that you could actually cover the entire size of New York City 17 times. So huge amount of forests uh, being destroyed. A lot of them being destroyed illegally. Uh, and mm-hmm. the reason why they're being destroyed is actually they're using it as farmland. So they're, they need to produce a certain amount of, uh, amount of food. So they're actually destroying these forests in order to create food for their country and to probably, I, I assume, also export some of this as well. So, so there's, there's a problem of we, we have increasing population. We need to feed it. Uh, so I, I think, you know, uh, GMOs can also increase the productivity of food as well instead of having to uh, remove more forests. Mm. Uh, and then the main thing is actually, uh, do you guys know what nitrogen fixing is? Nitrogen fixing? Yeah. No? So uh, to grow plants, plants actually need uh, nitrogen for as fertilizer in the soil. Okay, I knew that and, word. Uh, yeah, so commercially, actually, a lot of our fertilizer comes from fossil fuels <laughs> because you actually need to in order to create a uh, uh, nitrogen fertilizer, which is usually in the form of ammonia, you're actually not only taking nitrogen from the atmosphere, but then you're uh, heating it with hydrogen gas, which is then produced by fossil fuels, etc. It's very energy intensive, uh, lots of carbon uh, production out of it. But uh, nitrogen fixing or, or nitrogen fertilizer is critical in farming. Like You, you absolutely need it. There, you can't actually have any modern farming uh to unless you actually have this uh, nitrogen same thing for any you know when you grow plants in your backyard your yield is totally dependent on how much uh nitrogen you have in your soil uh so um that's why it's uh, in a lot of uh farms they have to add these yeah. chemical fertilizers in order to actually produce the amount of yield uh, to feed uh, the planet. Yeah, I, so I know you said uh, modern because I know that crop cycling is a thing that you can put different mm-hmm. types of crops in to to change the composition of your soil and add mm-hmm. nitrogen or take it out and yeah, you know, cycling in yeah. livestock to poop all over your your fields can help too or mm-hmm. things like that. But mm-hmm. I don't know how practical those so, are for modern farms. Yeah, so livestock, the livestock piece, uh, you're kind of just recycling that but really you know when you think of livestock where's the manure coming from Mm -hmm. it's coming from the plants that they eat yeah and then the question is the plants where did they get their nutrients from yep if you kind of walk back the cycle yeah it goes all the way back to uh, artificial chemical fertilizer (laughs) um 
So the question is, how do, how do we break that cycle? Uh, and do you know what uh, nitrogen uh, fixing for in uh, in legumes? Do you, do you know how that works? <laughs> I'm gonna say no. <laughs> My yeah. legume so knowledge you... is pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> so you already mentioned that you know people sometimes farmers will change crops, right? Yeah. So uh, the reason why they do that all is actually because they try to naturally increase the nitrogen in the soil. So legumes, they will plant them, and legumes have a really good symbiotic relationship with bacteria, where the bacteria will actually pull nitrogen from the atmosphere. Mm. And essentially put it into the soil. Like that's the whole role of these bacteria. And the technologies that are being developed right now, one of them being uh, MIT. MIT is essentially working on enabling plants to use the bacteria to pull nitrogen from the atmosphere and put it into the ground without the use of chemical fertilizers. So if you're able to do this, you're able to then essentially eliminate the need for generating fertilizers, which increase, uh, which is uh, putting carbon into the atmosphere, you're able to pull nitrogen from the atmosphere. You're then, as the plants grow, the plants pull carbon from the atmosphere. We get food. Uh, animals get food. Everyone's happy because yeah. <laughs> we're, we're 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 closing kind of this uh, carbon cycle. Yeah. Uh, to keep our keep our sustain our food systems and. So as as consumers, does it help at all for us to like change our eating habits and consume more legumes, more beans, and stuff like that? Yep, yep. I think any as we uh, transition to a more vegetarian diet, uh, clearly that's better for for the environment. It's still not perfect because the problem is we still our food still relies heavily on. Um, chemical fertilizers right mm-hmm. now. So this, this is why I feel like it's so important that like, these technologies uh, need to be uh, implemented in reality because we're always going to need to eat. Yeah. And uh, if you don't, if you can't break that cycle, they will always need some kind of like fossil fuel to mm-hmm. be able for us to eat. Do you think that it's it's plausible that we could genetically modify other plants using some of the genetics of the legume plant to help get like to help also replicate that nitrogen fixing mm-hmm. that you were talking about. Yeah, that that's that, oh, that's okay. the entire goal. Oh, okay. That, yeah, they're I was trying... wondering if that's kind of what you were getting at is that they're talking about like genetically modifying these other plants, like let's say a corn plant, yeah. to have some of the legume properties. Yeah, and and it's also not quite fully like you know you're not trying to create some kind of like freak. Uh, plant that you're just going to put into the environment. The, the thing is, these nitrogen-fixing properties are uh, being done via the mitochondria or the chloroplasts, which are very are they already have separate DNA mm-hmm. in those uh, organelles in a cell. So changing them doesn't actually impact like the plant itself. So you you know you're you're not creating some kind of weird hybrid. You're just literally using the existing mechanisms in a plant and turbocharging it mm-hmm. to make sure that it doesn't rely on external fertilizers. You're trying to just give it the ability to, hey, you know, you fertilize yourself mm-hmm. with the help of, you know, bacteria. 
That's really cool. Yeah. So there, uh, MIT is working on stuff like this. A, a lot of the biotech companies are working on things like that, just because it's so valuable and. You know, farmers would love it because now they don't need to buy chemical fertilizers. Mm -hmm. uh, I think as consumers, we would be happy about it because, okay, no, you're not uh, dumping chemical fertilizers on the land, which might leach into your water, etc. So I, I think it's a, a good win-win mm -hmm. for everyone. So That's it? There's some hope. That's all you have? <laughs> That's not enough hope, Kenny? <laughs> It's a little bit of hope, Sherry. We, we can it's cling a little to bit it. of hope. A tiny light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think, I mean, really, it's it's not an easy problem to solve. Mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, it, it, to me, it's clear, especially when you hear a lot of, uh, uh, the, the, a lot of the protests that were happening at the uh, summit. Um, what is it called, the summit? I can't remember what it's called. Uh, Sherry oh, said it. The COP26. COP, yeah. 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 It, it feels like a lot of times we're focused on, the governments are focused on numbers, but at the same time, I feel like activists also need to force some solutions as well versus uh, we're, we're, we're always talking about targets. And to me, targets mean nothing yeah. <laughs> if you can't actually uh, talk about what will get you to those targets. Yeah, so, so more like practices instead of target or numbers. More practices or even concrete policies, right, yeah. in terms of what what we're going to do. So whether that means policies like vehicles need to be electric mm -hmm. by X date, right? I know that so was really those. discussed in the last, uh, in the COP that recently happened, yeah. And then... Targets, you know, we need to target the the large industries. There's uh, there's industrial production that needs to uh, decarbonize food. I, I mean, I mentioned my solution is all revolves around food, but yeah. food production also is very carbon intensive, and we need to make it less. be more efficient. With yeah, that. Uh, definitely make it more uh, carbon neutral. Yeah, and I have a. Uh, a slight hatred for the organic farming industry because also <laughs> organic farming is the highest carbon producing industry in the world. And uh, I feel like we got to jump off the organic bandwagon and really like, let's stick to a little bit more science here. Yeah. But I feel like the organic uh, farming industry is also, um, can you guess how big they are? Well, I, I'm, I'm betting they're multi-billions as well. They've probably got some sway. They are. The global organic industry is as big as the U.S. oil industry. Oh, my goodness. That I would not have predicted. So they have a lot of money to create some influence as well. So. They're such a small part in the grocery store. <laughs> I don't understand. But think of the money. The money. I guess they do charge like twice as much for... Twice. Yeah. Three yeah. times a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah. It's the money and then... Uh, but also... But you, you kind of need to go to like California where you have dedicated stores all about oh, <laughs> yeah. organic. So <laughs> right. They have a lot of sway. Fair. So, fair point. Anyways, but uh, to me, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will continue our direction to become less carbon uh, emitting, but I think it's going to take a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, even our current targets are probably too ambitious <laughs> or I'm do you think it's too late I'm fearful that it it's going to be too little too late and that I'm going to be among the population that suffers the consequences of a lack of 
firm climate action? I do think it's too late uh, in terms of what are going to be the upcoming impacts. But the thing is, even if it's too late, you still need to do something. Yeah, <laughs> because it doesn't mean you don't throw do up your hands something. and say, well, yeah. no point in trying then. That's that's the wrong approach. Maybe except for your father-in-law, Sherry. You, you know, whatever. <laughs> no, the thing is, he's not going to be alive to really see the impact. So no. But for the for the rest of us and those younger than us, we you're definitely going to want to to build towards a, a climate goal that keeps this planet inhabitable and enjoyable by us. Yeah, and I think we can. I mean. Uh, th- I think it's so important that we align the right incentives for it. Um, I, 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 to me, I, I don't believe that we're going to be successful with things like this Iceland example, mm-hmm. where mm. none of the incentives are aligned. <laughs> There's no economic incentive to even have it, <laughs> and it doesn't really even do much. So, in the grand scheme of things, so um, the, the incentives need to be aligned. So, things like uh, the electric car industry. You know, it's moving towards it. People know the value, like why it's so valuable to have electric cars. It's not because they're saving the environment. It's because they are, you know, really fast to drive. It has, you know, great features, mm-hmm. etc. Like that's why people are buying electric vehicles. And I want them and to why... buy electric for my own air quality when I walk to work like a good citizen. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't know, Rory. They're faster, so they might be able to run you down <laughs> much more quicker. Quiet, too. I won't hear them coming. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because they did a survey recently on kind of electric vehicles, and you know they asked a bunch of participants, you know, what car are they excited for next? And a lot of people mentioned, you know, these upcoming electric pickup trucks. Oh yeah. Like you're talking about these rural conservative people that are excited about the, you know the new electric pickup truck because it can haul more it's faster blah blah you that's know, the it, way to to win them over i think is to to make it a better product than what they have right now i think the only only snag in this electric vehicle thing is that it's electric and so we're still relying on electricity from you know coal and and non renewable sure. sources so. but I, but, I, but i think step by step right yeah, yeah. yes uh the, the electric grid can always be upgraded. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can always add more solar, which then you can, uh, you know, you don't have to change your infrastructure. You just need to change the source of your electricity. And I'm hundred percent with you, Kenny. And also, like the fewer people you have involved in being part of the problem, the better, right? So if it's just the energy producing sector where we have a problem to solve, and that's a lot easier than every single citizen and consumer who drives a car being part of the problem and demanding a certain infrastructure to support their problematic behavior. Yeah. Lots of, lots of things to be solved. We got to make solar easier to get. Mm-hmm. It's pretty difficult to get solar right now as well. We need some government subsidies for these things, for cars that are electric and for solar panels that you can put on your house and things like that. Cause it's just out of financially out of reach for me. Hmm. And I know who should pay for it. <laughs> carbon emitters. Yeah. <laughs> we, we need a carbon tax. Eat the rich. <laughs> they can afford it. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of me, a carbon tax penalizes everyone equally. <laughs> okay. So are we feeling hopeful? 
hopeful enough. I, I, I didn't come into this podcast with the goal that I, my spirits would be uplifted and I would float away happy and secure yeah. in the knowledge that everything would be set right in the world. Yeah, I, I think we can get there. I mean, to be honest, I feel like we can get there. Yeah, You know, uh, we, we got to continue to hold our leaders feet to the fire and mm-hmm. keep pressing for it. The can-do attitude and the, the maintaining of political pressure is, is enough for today, for me. Hey, do you know what Canada's nuclear power plants are called? Can-do reactors. Are they? <laughs> I didn't know they that. <laughs> we can do. We can it. do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that actually stands for a Canada deuterium uranium reactor. <laughs> so can-do. <laughs> they only named it that so that you get to the can-do at the end. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we we can do it. <laughs> so thanks for listening, everyone. See you later. All right. See you next time. Bye.